listening to Indigo Radio. You are listening to us on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. We are on the air every Sunday on the radio at one o'clock. We are a group of educators seeking to deepen our understanding and make connections. We have been broadcasting for over five years and with shows about education, prison, labor, health, housing, media, and voices of resistance. So you can subscribe weekly to hear more on SoundCloud or Apple iTunes and follow us um, at Indigo Radio on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. Oh, my name's Mina. Kunimoto, and I am an educator in Brattleboro, Vermont, and a graduate student as well. And I'm Becca. And a, and a teacher in Spark, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Becca. I am an educator as well, currently based in Spain. And today, Nina and I are going to be talking about sports and politics. Usually, people watch sports for pure enjoyment to you know, forget the trouble of their lives. So the narrative goes. And for that reason, sports and politics do not mix. Yet sports and politics have always been intertwined. Today, we will air clips from a film, not just a game, narrated by David Zirin, the nation's sports editor and author. You can find more of his work at edgeofsports.com. And Nina, do you want to say anything before we jump into the first clip? I think this is an interesting topic. I think it's interesting, you know, also that both Becca and I are not sports fans, but, you know, we are very political. And so it's been an interesting way to, to think about um, sort of organizing work and, and political work. So, yeah. And it's interesting, Nina, what's considered a fan because I've always loved sports, but I've always been turned off by so much of the sports world. And watching this film and like thinking more about sports and politics, I kind of learned a little bit through this, why I've been so turned off by the sports world, even though I love playing sports and I love watching sports. So it's been interesting for me. Interesting. I did not know that, Becca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll be back after this clip. To me, politics has no part to play on the field of strife of competition. Throughout history, we've been told that sports and politics don't mix. Listen, listen, okay? I'm an, I'm an athlete. I, I win or I lose. You think that uh, sports people should take more of a political view? No, I don't. We've been told that in the arena of sport, 
It's all about things like achievement, athletic performance, competition, individualism, teamwork. Playing the game and playing it well is all that matters. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a chilly night. And yet everywhere we look, there seems to be a strange contradiction of this no politics rule. Prominent and powerful displays of nationalism and patriotism and military might that seem nothing if not political. All of it set against politics of an entirely different kind throughout the history of sport. Performances and actions patriotic in their own right and seemingly in keeping with one of the oldest credos of athletics to do one's best with respect for others and the rules of the game without fear. This is a film that takes sports seriously as a cultural force, a shared social space, and a political force that reflects and in turn shapes our often conflicting ideas and beliefs about who we are, how we view others, and how we see ourselves as a country. I'm Dave Zirin, and I love sports. I grew up idolizing guys like Lawrence Taylor, Gary Carter, and Magic Johnson. I played baseball in high school and was the starting center on my basketball team, the Fighting Quakers at New York Friends. My God, we were terrible. But sports were my life. And like most young boys in this country, one message was fed to me every time I took the field or watched a game. And it's a message that's only grown stronger with time. What Howard Cosell called rule number one of the jockocracy. The idea that sports and politics just don't mix. We're all supposed to just kick back, relax, and enjoy the Good show. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Madison Square Garden, the world's most famous arena. But for me, all of that changed back one day in the early 1990s. I'll never forget it. I went to Madison Square Garden, the world's most famous arena, to watch a basketball game. It was during the lead-up to the first Gulf War in 1991. And at halftime, I kid you not, one of the mascots started to beat up this guy who was wearing this Arab costume. And the Jumbotron was whipping the crowd up into a frenzy, getting everybody to chant, USA, USA, USA. I mean, it was sick. I came to watch a game, but I got served something else entirely. This was about as explicit a political spectacle as you could imagine. And I basically made a career out of trying to understand that murky place where sports and politics collide. And one of the first things I discovered was that sports is political in ways we don't often even notice, especially on the level of culture, where our ideas and attitudes as a society are shaped. <laughs> Historians have long known that you can find out a lot about the wider culture by looking at its sports culture. And history has taught us that sports is never just something that we just sit back and watch that sports always have had an important social function. And the history of American sports is no different. As in the far distant past, modern American sports culture shapes cultural attitudes, norms, and power arrangements. And it also serves as a key place to look if you want to understand how these norms and power structures have been negotiated, resisted, struggled with, and against. It's here where societal and cultural meanings play out, 
our very notions of who we are and how we see each other, not only as Americans, but as individuals, as boys and girls, and men and women, ideas about gender and race and class. And as we'll see, sports culture produces stories that become the dominant narratives that make certain ways of seeing the world normal, conventional, just the way it is, while at the same time actively trying to silence anything or anybody who doesn't fit in this accepted frame. We have to start then with what the big time sports world is like at its seemingly most normal and natural. More than anything else, the world of sports has traditionally been thought of as a male arena. This is rough, hard football. We got a bunch of proud, valiant warriors. Fight! That's all I've asked you to do, is fight for me with everything you worth. An arena where a certain kind of manhood holds sway. Phenomenal performance from the muscle man from Masculine, pumped up, comfortable with violence, immune to pain, and against showing vulnerability of any kind. Sports culture offers up role models for what it means to be a man. And real men will do whatever it takes to win. Winning is everything. Whether that means taking steroids to hit more home runs or pitching on a bloody ankle, sports culture tells us that real men are willing to sacrifice their bodies for the team. They play with pain. They man up. They shake it off. They get back in the game. It's going to take a physical investment. When it hurts, you're hurt, you're sore, you're tired. Guess what? Nobody gives a f And nothing embodies and reproduces this masculine ideal better or more effectively than NFL football. Never show weakness. Never show weakness. Only pain that matters the pain you inflict. Being masculine means being able to inflict pain and to endure it, no matter how violent and without regard for the consequences. This warrior image moves beyond personal identity to link up with and reinforce larger forces and values in the culture, most notably militarism. We're going to cut out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. We're going to murder those lousy hung bastards by the bushel. In football, the object is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy, in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. And the militarization of sports culture might be even funnier if so many guys didn't take it so literally. It's war. They don't give a freaking, you know what, about you. They will kill you. They're out there to kill you. If I didn't hurt him, he'd hurt me. They're gunning for my legs. I'm gonna come right back at him. soldier. Professional sports leagues actively promote this idea, making it so commonplace in our culture that we don't even notice it. We don't even question it. Gentlemen, congratulations and welcome to Super Bowl 43. General David Petraeus will toss the coin. But when you stop and think about it, it's actually downright bizarre how militarized sports culture has become. And it's not just the National Football League. I went to a baseball game a few years back, and it turned out I was also attending something called Military Appreciation Night. Before the opening pitch, with George W. Bush in attendance, a whole group of Marines were sworn in at home plate. 
Then the PA announcer came in and said, For those of you in the audience who also want a career in the military, please visit the appropriate kiosk. If going to war isn't political, then nothing is. And yet this mix of sports and politics seems perfectly natural to us. We're made to think it's not political at all, that it's just the way it is. And this is how ideology works. It naturalizes ideas and images that deflect attention away from other realities. And this is where it really starts to matter. Many people who follow professional football were saddened to learn last week that the Hall of Fame center Mike Webster died at the age of 50 after years of combat on the field. He had heart disease and brain damage. However, it is hard to find a former pro football player whose body hasn't paid a very high price. The dominant narrative in sports culture presents a narrow, glamorized view of militarism and violence that conceals many of the costs and consequences of this fictionalized ideal of male invulnerability. You do feel like you are Superman, uh, because like I said, you can do anything you want, you can get anything you want, you can go anywhere you want to go. In the militarized spectacle of football especially, there seems to be no room for the statistical fact that this sport takes a terrible toll on the human body. I have had one, two, three right ankle, one, two, three, four, five, six right knee surgery and a hernia surgery. Six out of ten former players say they have suffered at least one concussion while playing. The average NFL career is three and a half years, and the average player will die 20 years sooner than the rest of the population. 20 years. I've had players tell me that to play professional football is to skip middle age. I've been to retirement dinners, and I've seen guys who aren't much older than me walking with canes. It probably wasn't worth the kind of pain I'm in now, but would I do it again? Absolutely. All of which raises the question, does the cartoon version of violence we see in American sports culture sanitize and lie about the real-life consequences of violence. And most importantly, if sports glamorize war, if they in effect deceive us about the reality and tragedy of war, are we looking at a form of propaganda here? Shoots it over the middle, and whoa, what a hit! Pat Tillman knocked the helmet off of Isaac Burke. It's a question NFL star Pat Tillman would have been very interested in. Back in 2001, Tillman was coming off the best year of his career. He was picked for Sports Illustrated's All-Pro team, and he had just turned down a $9 million contract to stay with his team, the Arizona Cardinals. Pat Tillman was tough, and he was loyal. He was a coach's dream. Then came 9-11. Out of respect for the unfolding tragedy, the NFL postponed a week of games. But Tillman went further than that. He joined the Army Rangers. My great-grandfather was at Pearl Harbor, and a lot of my family has given up, you know, has gone and fought in wars, and, and I really haven't done a damn thing. This was the real deal, a pro football player giving up a lucrative career to serve his country in the field of battle. A true patriot and a true American hero. News of another American death has refocused attention on the meaning of sacrifice and service. Pat Tillman, who gave up a multi-million dollar contract in professional football, has been killed. 22 months after enlisting, Pat Tillman was dead. 
His memorial service was aired on national television. The army awarded him a silver star for his gallantry in action against an armed enemy. They said Tillman's convoy had been ambushed in Afghanistan. They said Tillman charged up the hill to protect his men, but was shot down by the Taliban. That was the official story. But there was only one problem. It was a lie. When he died in Afghanistan on April 22, 2004, the army told his family he'd been killed by enemy fire after courageously charging up a hill to protect his fellow army rangers. But that story didn't hold up. He was really killed by friendly fire, shot accidentally by his fellow soldiers. Since the official story didn't fit into the dominant narrative we've been discussing, it was decided that the truth should be hidden. Now the Army admits its own investigators held back their finding that this was a friendly fire incident. They kept that fact secret for weeks, even from Tillman's family, until after his nationally televised memorial service. And maybe the worst part about all of this was that this whitewashing of Tillman's story also hid what might be the most important part of his story. That while he was stationed in Iraq in 2003, he had turned against the war. He thought yeah, the war was illegal. He thought it was a mistake. He thought it was going to be a disaster. And, you know, you don't, in the Army, you're not supposed to talk about that. There's, you could, you're not supposed to talk politics. And Pat didn't, didn't shut up. You know, he told everyone he, who he encountered, this war is illegal as hell. In fact, when Tillman was redeployed to Afghanistan in 2004, he began reading the anti-war activist Noam Chomsky. In the last 10 years, the United States has devastated the uh, civilian society of Iraq. Tillman told his mother he wanted to meet Chomsky in person after he returned to the United States. Was there any solace in the story the military told you about how courageous Pat had been? Well, of course, but what's interesting is the story itself seemed so contrived. The soldier, you know, running up the ridge line, firing at the enemy, you know, saving his men. Um, it did sound kind of like a John Wayne movie. The reason this misrepresentation of Pat Tillman matters so much is because it so vividly exposes a fault line in the political mythology of sport. It shows how the real man myth that gets reinforced in sports culture often works to marginalize actual men whose true acts of courage, even if these take the form of standing up to the government, may be more admirable than the fictional half-truths assigned to them by the media sports complex. Good morning, America, and welcome to a special edition of Fox NFL Sunday. Which is exactly what happened recently when Fox NFL Sunday commemorated Veterans Day by broadcasting from Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan and proceeded to pay tribute to Pat Tillman without even hinting at the more complicated facts of his story, even though his family has been fighting for years to make these facts known. The memory of Pat Tillman lives on at the USO Center on this very airfield here at Bagram. Rather than bothering to mention that Tillman had turned against the war, the Fox commentators, dressed in full camouflage, used his life and death to promote war. Oliver tells us the tie between the US military and the NFL has always been a strong one. The ties between professional football and the U.S. military have existed since the start of the NFL back in 1920. That relationship grew immensely during World War II, and today that bond is stronger than ever. 
They allowed Pat Tillman's personal story to circulate within a larger political mythology and sports culture that seems more comfortable with men who fight wars than with men who fight against them when they believe them to be unjust. What do you think Pat would think of all this? He'd hate it. <laughs> he would be, you know, just insanely upset. And then I think, you know, like when he kind of looked back on it, he just he'd just laugh, you know, he'd be like, I can't, you know, this is just criminal. And those, are, those would probably be his exact words, this is criminal. It's as though being political in itself is somehow antithetical to being an athlete or a sports fan, that's somehow caring about what goes on in the world or questioning and wondering and thinking critically about the role sports plays in the wider culture is somehow abnormal, uncool and unmanly. And it's just this attitude that throughout the history of American sports has marginalized entire groups of people. This is Indigo Radio on WBEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. We just aired a clip from, or not just a game is the name of the video. And the narrator was Dave Zyron. And Nina, I'm just curious what stood out to you from that part of the film? I mean, one thing as I was listening to it, I was thinking about the history of sports. It reminded me, you know, like, for example, when I went to Mexico City and, and you know, sort of walked through the, the history museum that, you know, that in ancient and in, in the Aztecs played sports. And, and so I just it made me think about what's the, what's the history of the current American sports, you know, and, um, and, and why is it the way it is today? You know, and I mean, there are just so many like things like NFL, you know, I think about, especially NFL, it's such a violent sport. Um, American football is such a violent sport and it seems to sort of speak to militarization, you know, what the military is. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, that, those are my sort of initial thoughts about, about that. What about you? I'm just, I'm thinking so much about how um, we try to separate and compartmentalize things within our society. And we're taught to do that. Um, and so sports is supposed to be something outside of everything else. Sports is supposed to be something that allows you to escape. Um, right. But sports are, comes from within our society, right? It, it is part of like everything that happens within the NFL football is mm -hmm. a mirror. It's a reflection of our society. It's not, it's both shaped by and then shapes and reinforces the dominant political and economic structures of society. And right. so if we can't talk about politics and sports, then we can't see that connection. And we just, mm -hmm. we just absorb it as if it's something so normal and natural. Right. Um, rather than that it's reinforcing dominant ideas constantly. Um, I think every time we, especially NFL football, but all the other sports are so um, commercial commercialized and about money right now. I was thinking about um, the, 
I'm, I've always been super interested in the Super Bowl, mostly just for the commercials and halftime show. I feel like that's, that's kind of a trend in the U.S. Yeah. People who watch the Super Bowl but aren't big fans of NFL football. Yeah. This year, the halftime show was a bunch of the hip-hop artists from the 90s. Oh, I saw that. Yep. yep. And uh, the blowback and pushback from that, their, their songs were so apolitical that they chose, but just having Black culture represented in the halftime show so explicitly, mm-hmm. it people were questioning, is this American? And so it brings up all sorts of current trends of politics, even when things are not political. Right. Um, I mean, when you say reinforcing dominant ideas, at the same time, it masks and hides the, 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 the relationship, right. That you were talking about earlier, that when, when we, when we, when we don't talk about it, it masks it in, um, which, which reinforces, you know, um, reinforces the the way things are. Um, and I do have to say, I do watch those commercials too, because they're funny and interesting. Um, and, it's so interesting, again, with the hip hop, like if you think about the history of how hip hop emerged, right? It emerged out of um, a destruction of a community of color in the Bronx, right? But that isn't talked about at all. And, and the other thing, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking that we don't think about the class aspect of sports, like a lot, you know, there, first of all, there's this, um, dream, you know, for many uh, students who live in poor conditions, um, and particularly students of color who are in living in poor conditions, that this is their ticket out, um, ticket to getting a lot of money. um, Even though, you know, that's also, that's a false narrative. Um, And even if you do, you know, become someone who makes a lot of money yeah it's still again reproducing and it it doesn't liberate anyone Mm -hmm. in in particular um so yeah you know it's interesting when we talk about um class and money within sports because we it's common knowledge that the players make an extraordinary amount of money and it's seen as justified you know like what we learned uh nfl football players lose 20 years of their life from playing. It's something that they, it's a sacrifice, quote unquote, that they're making, right? For fame and fortune. But what we don't often hear about is the owners of the teams who are masked and hidden like they are in society in general. And something that I found really interesting is that the major league baseball um, just had a lockout from the owners. So there's 30 owners who are billionaires who have like made $10 billion in the last years. And they shut down the game and claiming that they were losing money. So they wanted to put caps on what players could make and what teams could spend. And so these franchise owners who are pocketing public money, the money that we spend um, to go to games, and the money that the like mainstream cable networks like 
yeah, spend, they make that money from that. They were saying that they weren't making enough. And hidden behind this story was that actually the baseball union is really strong and they have made it so that revenue is not always um, flowing into the hands of the owners. Mm. And so it was a pushback of the union that, as Dave Zirin puts, has been kicking the boss's collective asses over the years. And so what's interesting is the settlement was made and this shutout has stopped. Um, But one of the changes that has been made since this, just this month, is that Major League Baseball is now the first of the major leagues in the U.S. that can have advertisements on sports uniforms. Oh. And it's been a big pushback for years. And so the corporations won, you know? Yeah. And, um, which we're going to hear a lot more about in our next segment. <laughs> Great. We have a little song break to begin. Fabulous and Jada Kiss talk about it featuring Tayana Taylor. I'm going to talk about it. Well, I'm going to talk about it. Can't remain silent. Gotta speak up. Can we talk about they say it's justice. Can we I feel like it's just us. Look, I know y'all tired of talking and going to demonstrations, but if we don't speak up, you help the discrimination. We need a one-on-one before it goes gun on gun. People skip the front page till they see their son on one, and now it's too late to talk. The topic has changed. They shooting at black targets like these cops at a range. Can we talk how many died for the birth of a nation? And how this national anthem ain't worth my ovation? And if I am standing up, I'ma stand up for equality. It's brutality. We need more than that apology. Can we talk about it? Not just all this but the players too y'all on the field not the mic but y'all can say it too we need more kaepernick and not just with the rapper kicking we need more than instagram posts with smart captions black actors stop acting and start action current got the credit forgot about mark jackson can we Damn. talk about the lives being taken can we talk about the guns going off in the four seconds i'm afraid of my own generation can we talk about it no can we talk can we talk about the blood on the Welcome back. That was fabulous and Jada Kiss, and you're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Today, we're uh, talking about sports and politics, that sports is politics. Um, As we heard in the last segment, um, sports reproduces the dominant ideology that glorifies hyper-masculinity, militarization, um, and also profit accumulation. This idea that when somebody speaks up against the dominant um, narrative in the society, for example, um, like Pat Tillman speaking out against the military and being against war, that that narrative was silenced. Mm. When that narrative does come through in the sports arena, it, that's what's called political. But the right. mainstream show and the of war and masculinity is not considered uh, political. And it just reminded me so much of 
what's happening within schools and conversations around schools these days. Yeah. Um, with the big pushback to not teach critical race theory, even though like, I hate even using that term because it's become this like slogan, slogan that nobody really knows what it means, but even exactly. in general, right. It's okay. Mm-hmm. As, as a history teacher that I teach, um, patriotism, that mm-hmm. I teach nationalism, that I teach white history, that I glorify men and individuals. But if I start to do something that is not any of those things, I'm labeled as a political person, right. a political teacher. And so it's just um, so important that we are able to really see everything as political and determine um, what are the narratives behind the actions and behind the events that are happening rather than what is political and what is not political. And could you, you know, um, for our listeners, because oftentimes as someone told me, you know, when, when Americans in particular think political, they think um, political parties, right? Democrat, Republican. So for you, what does political mean? I think um, political is anything that shapes the ideas of people that relates to why things are the way they are. So explanations of the world or what's lacking from those explanations. It's about the relationships amongst people. And I would add power as well, like who holds power to be able to make um, decisions and create the stories in society mm-hmm. as well, the narratives in society. Mm-hmm. But that's a good question. I might, I might add more to my idea of what is political after this clip. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> good. Um, all right. So we're going to now shift into um, the second part. Uh, we have been uh, playing not just a game, um, which is narrated by Dave Zirin. Um, he is the nation's sports editor and author. You can find more of his work at edgeofsports.com. He, and then this next part, we're going to talk about um, courage of athletes in speaking up, but also um, the overriding corporate power, the entities that the athletes keep quiet for their wealth and fame. When you were starting out as a writer, you were a black impoverished, homosexual, you must have said to yourself, gee, how disadvantaged can I get? Oh, no, I thought I hit the jackpot. Oh, great. (laughs) The great writer James Baldwin once said that America was a country that was devoted to the death of the paradox. He meant that we pride ourselves on keeping things simple, straightforward, uncomplicated. We want our play to be play and our work to be work. And I think this is at the heart of why we have such a hard time thinking of politics as mixing with sports. But there's just one problem with this whole notion that sports is somehow pure and should remain untouched by the world outside. It's not even close to being true. Gatorade, that's cheap. For one thing, it misses how the supposed purity of sports has long since been defiled by commercialism. The outside influence of commercialism and media money on American sports is so powerful that it has turned political rebellion into a brand. Say you want a revolution. 
it seems only commercialism is capable of making sports safe for politics. More than anything else, I'd argue that it is corporate power and fear of a backlash from sponsors that drives the anti-political attitude we find in our sports culture and makes athletes afraid to rock the boat. Introducing the Mercedes-Benz SLS AMG. And how athletes negotiate this pressure tells a story about American power and politics all its own. Some cave, some stand up for what they believe regardless of the consequences, and some, like LeBron James, can't seem to make up their minds. LeBron James is the kind of galactic talent that holds the potential to redefine basketball. LeBron just crushed it. Who was that? But he has also declared that he has aspirations beyond sports. James has said that he has two goals in his life. One is to be, quote, a global icon like Muhammad Ali, and the other is to be the richest athlete in the history of the world. And while these may be two great goals, they don't exactly go great together. And that's because guys like Muhammad Ali didn't become global icons because they were rich, but because they were willing to sacrifice everything, including sponsorship deals, to stand up for what they believed in. All of my boxing, all of my run around, all of my publicity, it was just the start of my life. Now my life is starting. Fighting injustice, fighting racism, fighting crime, fighting literacy, fighting poverty. Using this face that the world knows for fame and going out and representing truth and helping certain causes. Boxing was just the dressing room and the stadium is the world of problems. Boxing was just to introduce me to the world. Now they said life starts at 40, right? You ever heard that? Yeah, I'm 39. Muhammad Ali remains a global icon, not because of what he earned, but for what he sacrificed. He wanted more than just money more than fame, more than boxing titles. He wanted to change the world. And to do that, we need to remember that he had to change his own thinking about fame and glory first. When he was 18 years old and won the Olympic gold in Rome, young Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. said that his dream was to bring professional wrestling into boxing. And he pointed to a flamboyant pro wrestler by the name of Gorgeous George as his hero. By the mid-1960s, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali and had become a far more dangerous man. Why do you insist on being called Muhammad Ali now? Well, that's the name given to me by my leading teacher, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. That's my original name. That's a black man named Cassius Clay was my slave name. I'm no longer a slave. By the 1960s, remember, you had two grand movements, the African-American freedom struggle and the anti-war movement. The two movements didn't always merge, but they did in Muhammad Ali. Ali was still the consummate showman, but now his hero was Malcolm X. What is it revolting against? The power structure. In 1964, Ali joined the Nation of Islam, a group feared and hated by white America, and started speaking out against racism. They rape our women daily. Policemen pull black people over and hit them across the head and unjustly try them in courts and none of the good white folks can be found to help us. A 
couple years later, he would become one of the earliest and most outspoken high-profile Americans to come out against the Vietnam War, laying everything on the line by resisting the draft in 1966. The intention is to kill, 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 and continue killing innocent people. It was an act of conscientious objection that would not only cost him his championship belt, but also get him sentenced to prison. The close heavyweight champion Cassius Clay at a federal court in Houston is found guilty of violating the U.S. Selective Service laws by refusing to be inducted. He is sentenced to five years in prison and fined $10,000. The fact is that Muhammad Ali was more than an athlete. When he believed in something, he believed in standing up for it outside of the ring. And he did it with the fearlessness of someone who understood he was part of a larger struggle. Floyd Patterson and other fighters, they just don't take part. They make a million dollars, they get them a Rolls Royce, they get them a nice home, they get them a white wife. Well, I made it, America's great, and the rest of them catching hell and he won't say nothing. But when one man of popularity can let the world know the problem, he, can, uh, he might lose a few dollars himself telling the truth, might lose his life but he's helping millions. I just love the freedom and the flesh and blood of my people more so than I do the money. You can take his shirt and play it right in Washington, let Nixon hear it. Of course, this was all long before corporations would be at a safe enough distance from the anti-corporate energy of those years to turn true rebellion into a marketing pitch for sports drinks and sneakers. And long before kids like LeBron went from wanting to be a great man like Muhammad to wanting to be a great pitch man like Mike. Today, the former Chicago Bulls superstar Michael Jordan runs a division of Nike. But during his playing days, he too often acted as though Nike ran him. They were dubbed the Dream Team. The greatest collection of basketball talent ever assembled. And they were on a mission to return U.S. basketball back to its once golden past. In 1992, Jordan went to Barcelona with the U.S. Olympic basketball team, nicknamed the Dream Team. They rolled to the gold in fantastic fashion. But as the medal ceremony approached, Jordan had a crisis of conscience. Notice how Jordan has an American flag over his shoulder? Well, this apparently heartwarming display of patriotism would turn out to be something else entirely. Jordan was using the flag to hide the Reebok logo on the team jersey. The United States players who have other affiliations, and particularly with the Nike company, have covered up the the word Reebok with the American flag. Michael Jordan in particular draped in the American flag and that is not just solely for patriotic reasons. He was using an American flag to protect his brand. A form of subservience to corporate power that Michael Jordan modeled yet again when he refused to endorse Harvey Gantz, an African-American Democrat, when he ran against Republican Senator Jesse Helms an outspoken opponent of civil rights and a former segregationist, all because he didn't want to upset the domestic sneaker market. Some social observers say it was Michael Jordan who set the example for star athletes on being apolitical. In 1990, he famously declined to back a Democratic African-American Senate candidate in his home state of North Carolina by responding, Republicans buy sneakers too. The bottom line requires offending as few people as possible. So if you want to make money, you better keep your mouth shut. That's all, folks. That's my line. In many ways, these two great athletes represent the twin poles of the story of politics in American sports. 
Ali on the one side, showing how greatness in the ring doesn't require sacrificing greatness outside of it. Am I really the greatest of all time? Jordan on the other, ushering in a new age of corporate rule that loves to glorify the image of rebellion while stripping it of its substance so it doesn't get in the way of its bottom line interests. And it says something, I think, very damning about this country, that Ali has been embraced now that he has lost the power of speech. It is a privilege to stand next to the greatest. After he saw the destruction in Haiti, he wrote down a few words and asked me to read them aloud. That's something that really weighs on my mind a lot of the time. Because to me, Muhammad Ali was a voice of resistance. And I think we miss that voice very much. I'll never want to fight again if it means I'll have to sell out or maybe Uncle Tom or be a compromise, I would say. On those terms, never. LeBron James and others concerned about their legacies would do well to remember the side of history Ali was on. They would do well to remember how today's play it safe commercial mindset conceals a long-standing countercurrent that's been there throughout the history of sports. Embodied in athletes like Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who turned American sports culture on its head in the late 1960s. There's Questad, it's a good start. And Carlos, as usual, has burst out of the blocks. Tommy Smith running pretty well so far. And in lane two, Bombuk is strong on the outside. It's Edwin Roberts. It's John Carlos right now. It's Carlos and Smith. And here comes Tommy Smith. Smith has done it with his hands in the air. They won a gold and a bronze medal at the 68 Olympics. And what they did next couldn't stand in starker contrast to today's depoliticized, sanitized, and hyper-commercialized sports world. They didn't pull a Jordan at the 1968 Olympics and use their platform on the global stage to protect an endorsement deal. No. These guys had a point to make. As they walked to the platform, they took off their shoes and carried them to protest poverty in America. They wore beads to protest lynching, and John Carlos even unzipped his jacket a violation of Olympic protocol to represent, as he told me, his working buddies, black and white, back home in New York City. And in perhaps the most famous gesture in Olympic history, they raised their fists during the national anthem to show solidarity with the civil rights movement. Their symbolic gesture inspired millions around the world but their punishment was swift and severe. Good morning to you. The Olympic Games are one week old today, and yesterday, the sixth day, was the most dramatic so far. It started with the news that the Black Power disciples, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Olympic 200 meters gold and bronze medalists, had been suspended by the United States Olympic Committee and given 48 hours to leave Mexico. I had said that if there were any demonstrations at the Olympic Games by anyone, the participants would be sent home. Smith and Carlos were expelled from Olympic Village. Their athletic careers were ruined. For years, they received death threats and were treated like traitors to their country. They couldn't find good jobs. Their wives and children suffered. Do you think the Olympic Games are the right place to do this kind of thing? You ought to use this as a kind of world stage? David, since we are athletes, although I am a teacher, but I'm not a politician, uh, we use this so the whole world could see the poverty of the black man in America. At the same time, cynics might say that you've got it all. You've got publicity, you've got medals, you've always got martyrdom as well. What are you going to say to that? I can't eat that. And the kids around my block, they grew up with me, they can't eat it. And the kids that's going to grow up after them, they can't eat 
glistening. He can't even go medals, as Tommy Smith said. All we ask for is equal chance to be a human being. And as far as I see now, we're five steps below the ladder. And every time we try and touch the ladder, they put their foot on our hands and don't want us to climb up. Moments like these are a crucial part of the history of American sports, part of a long legacy of struggle and courage in the face of injustice that has largely been forgotten as politics has come to be considered not only inappropriate in the arena of sports, but actually antithetical to it. We want so much to see sports solely as an arena of play, not seriousness. But here's the thing. This can cheapen not only the greatness and relevance of sports to us as a society, but also the courage of athletes. And we do an injustice to them and to what's best about sports when we sanitize the past and rip athletics out of the political and cultural context it has always been a part of. Keeping our mouths shut in the face of injustice may help us make fun of others and silence them and assure that we stay popular with the keepers of normality. But real courage means standing up when it's not popular. And real men and real women don't ask permission to raise their fists. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP FM, Rattleboro's community radio station. And you were just listening to a segment of um, Not Just a Game. And today our show... Um, is about sports in the U.S. and sports as political. Um, stay tuned. We will have a part two um, where we're going to just focus on international sports. But for today, we're going to uh, stick with the United States. Even just because um, Dave Zyron talked about um, Juan Carlos um, and, and the 68 Olympics, I also want to mention that like um, the the white athlete, um, Peter George Norman, also suffered immensely. He was stripped um, of his uh, medal and because he was wearing a um, he was in solidarity with with the two. And um, he wore a medal on on his left breast that said Olympic Project for Human Rights. And he went home and his entire life like he was he was um, he lived in poverty just uh until his death actually so just to like you know also show that that there is solidarity there was solidarity um with you know with the with the australian um athlete peter george norman well i think that's such an important point i mean what i think about a lot today is how um colin kaepernick has become the face of resistance um in sports and um when you talked about like white athletes who aren't as well known, Megan um, Rapinoe, I'm not sure if I say her name right, who's a um, on the U.S. football Olympic team. Um, she all like days after Kaepernick started kneeling, she started kneeling in solidarity as well, and said that it's important to have white people stand in support of people of color on this, and she refused to go to the White House. Um, when Trump invited the whole team to go after winning. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but she wasn't well known. It didn't really make the media. Um, but Colin Kaepernick did. And, and something that I find interesting about Colin Kaepernick, I, I still would stand by him and, um, you know, I think he's such an important 
person in sports speaking out um, and brought controversies that were happening in the U.S. to mainstream debates and discussions that were not otherwise being had about police killings of unarmed Black people and Mm -hmm. racism in general in the United States. But it's interesting because Colin Kaepernick maybe would not have stood up if it wasn't for the Black Lives Matter movement and uprisings that were happening all across the country, um, that he was very much influenced by political on, on by the pol- political movements in the country in the same way that others who spoke in the past were like Muhammad Ali. Yeah. At the same time, I feel like Colin Kaepernick really represents that um, line that athletes are walking between corporations and doing what's right. So Colin Kaepernick had signed, is in, is in assigned a contract with Nike. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in mm-hmm. the Nike um, commercial. And after that commercial, oh, the Nike sales surged 31% and the company stock rose by 5%. So yeah. what does that mean for, for Colin Kaepernick that um, one, he lost his career. <laughs> so some would say that he was put in a situation where he had no other choice to make money. Um, and also he allowed Nike to jump on the bandwagon of right. what they were talking about in the film of revel, um, like corporatizing political revolutions into a brand. And they're, thereby neutralizing it, right? Or using it to, to like further profit. Mm-hmm. of it while it continues to to make others poor mm-hmm. um and I mean yeah I, I knew that about Colin Kaepernick that he signed on with Nike and then there are other artists right um it's interesting you know um when becoming political can be profitable then they choose to to jump on it so for example Freddie Mercury and Pharrell Williams I it angered me so much like I remember watching a a interview with Pharrell Williams it was like an actor studio or something like that he was like no you know I don't I don't get involved with politics like that's just not my thing and then during again during the uprisings in the U.S. he comes out with this big song called freedom you know sort of um promoting um um Black Lives Matter and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, like, I, so that he could make money. And then Freddie Mercury is the same thing with AIDS. Like, he actually did not want to play in the um, that big concert in '89, I think. He's like, oh, but it's going to bring me more fame, so I'm going to jump in and play and be political. Um, so yeah, that upsets, angers me <laughs> when it's like, well, because I'm going to make money, I'm I'm going to be political, you know. And I think it's hard to know what other possibilities could exist when we don't have a lot of examples. Muhammad Ali said, I'll stand up for my people over money. Um, Was Colin Kaepernick doing the same thing potentially, but then at what, and then, and then what? Right. Um, Right. He still does not have a football career, you know? And so that they're using him as an example. He's gained fame in some ways, but it's also a stark reminder to sports players, this is what you have to lose. 
everything that mm-hmm. you've ever worked towards <laughs> your dreams essentially. Right. And so right. sports again, don't exist outside of our world. I would say the exact same thing happens to anyone who's become a, like who strives to become a CEO of a company. Even when CEOs make statements, maybe that person individually really does want to make that statement. But in the end, the money is the core of the decisions that are made. The, you know, will this hurt or enhance the company's profits? And so individual players are no different than that. The point is that our society is driven by the need to make profit. Mm-hmm. And so individuals are just playing up that. Did you have a clip you wanted to play about LeBron? I just think it's interesting. Yeah, um, LeBron James, this is from 2020. Again, I think he's someone who is, you could say he was influenced by the movements on the street. You could also say that it, somehow it's bringing him more, he's influenced by money. But here's a clip from him at the ESPY Awards, which is Excellence in Sports Performance Yearly Award. Moment as a call to action for all professional athletes to educate ourselves, explore these issues, speak up, use our influence, and renounce all violence. And most importantly, go back to our communities, invest our time. So that was LeBron James speaking, encouraging professional athletes to speak out on political issues. And he's coming up towards the end of his career. Um, but there's more, this was from an interview on the daily show with Trevor Noah. So you can find out more of what he says and why he explains kind of the shift. And I found it interesting because Dave Zirin mentioned him as somebody who was constantly walking a line, who wanted to make a difference, but also wanted to be wealthy. And so now he has his family foundation that's now going into political struggle. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was also, I, before I totally forget, I, I have to search it because again, like I don't have all these names, you know, sports names to memorize, but there was the, also the hoodies up um, protest by, oh gosh, it was led by, hold on. <laughs> it was led by some basketball player that everybody in the world knows. Oh, oh. By LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Political like, commentary by Nina. Some basketball <laughs> player. Some <laughs> basketball player. So, yeah, uh, LeBron James led um, after um, uh, Trayvon Martin was murdered. He, uh, I think his team, what was his team? Oh my gosh. That's how much I know about sports. There you go. What, what was it? Was he, what is he, LA? Is he? Oh, I, I thought LeBron James retired, Nina. So I looked it up and I'm oh, like, no. oh, yeah. back when he was playing, um, I, I don't remember uh, what, what team he was on, but in any case, maybe the Miami heat, I don't know. Um, but whatever team he was on, he got all the players like to wear a hoodie and, um, to protest. So, you know, uh, that was one thing that he did do. I don't know at what point in his career he did that, but, um, he did participate in that. I think every athlete and everyone who has any, um, like some athletes have said, I have a moment in fame. I have a moment in the spotlight and I'm going to use it. It was one of another, one of the actors who supported LGBTQ rights as a straight person. 
who stood up and out, outspokenly supported and said, I have a moment in the spotlight and I'm going to use it as best as I can. Man, if any, if everyone thought about it in that way, it would, it would make shifts in the world. It's not going to change things, but it would make shifts because young people who are not sure are being yeah. influenced one way or the other by the politics in sports. And they learn a lot from sports. Mm-hmm. Like sports is a big part of not just American students and children or youth, um, but, you know, everywhere around the world, um, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's a tool. I think sports is a tool that could be used either way. It could be used to, you know, um, promote corporatization or it can be used, you know, as a tool for, for liberation, for human liberation. Um, you know, like, and then I know we're not talking about international um, sports people, but I think of like Maradona, um, mm-hmm. you know, which we could talk about next time. And there are some more recent um, athletes. So y'all all have to stay tuned for that. Um. <laughs> I did want to play one clip because it's so timely from Egyptian squash player, Ali Farak. Um, yeah, absolutely. Out the double absolutely. standards on Ukraine coverage after winning the world squash tournament. We've all seen the, the what's what's going on in the world at the moment with Ukraine and nobody's happy with what's going. Nobody should ever accept any any killings in the world, any oppression. Uh, but uh, we've all, we've never been uh, allowed to speak about uh, politics and sports, but all of a sudden now it's, it's allowed. So uh, that we're allowed. I hope that the people also uh, look at the oppression everywhere in the world. I mean, the Palestinians have been going through that for the past 74 years. And, uh, and, uh, but I guess, but I guess because it doesn't fit the narrative of the, of the media of the West, uh, we couldn't uh, talk about it. But now that it's, so we can talk about the Ukraine, we can talk about Palestinians. So please keep that in mind. Thank you very much. Yeah, I just, I love, you know, because they do have the mic. And it's like, they use the mic at the moment to educate, you know, I mean, we educate in classrooms, you know, we educate on the streets and, and, you know, this is just another way um, to use it as a tool, I think, um, to, to make our world better. And it's foolish to think that athletes, um, it's part of the like commercialization of athletes that they are not people that they're just there Mm -hmm. to perform and serve and they don't have brains, but as was mentioned about Muhammad Ali and many, many other professional athletes understand that they're a part of the larger struggle. Mm-hmm. And so let's hope that more and more continue to stand up and speak out. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to go out with James Brown living in America. Yay. Yeah. So you've been listening to Indigo Radio, a project of the Spark Teacher Education Institute and WBEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You can find five years of past shows by subscribing to SoundCloud or Apple iTunes. And make sure that you follow Indigo Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The views and opinions on this show are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. Thanks, Nina. It's been fun. I look forward to part two. Absolutely. Thank you. 